We are well into the second month of 2023, and things are moving fast in the newsroom. We're already talking about upcoming projects and events planned for the spring and summer. Did I mention that it's just February? Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. This is obviously a a disciplinary action that is going to continue to, to haunt both of these departments, as well as these officers. We'll talk about the life and music of one of the pioneers of soul music, Sam Cooke. That's where Sam is, you know, singing with soul. And we'll hear more from our ongoing Times Union podcast about the disappearance of Jalik Rainwalker. He uh, immediately said, I don't know why anyone cares what I'm wearing. I live in a tent, Mrs. Hudson. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, now let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. All right, we are back again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. Let's talk about the top headlines this week. We'll start with one from Kathleen Moore and Emily Munson. Uh, Kids are missing school in New York. What's going on there? Yeah, this is uh, uh, the problem of missing kids. Thank God, not missing in the criminal justice sense, um, but uh, missing in the sense that they are no longer going to school and those absences cannot be explained as a a switch to homeschooling or, or something like that. This is based on some really good data crunching from the Associated Press, uh, as well as uh, Stanford University, which has what they call the Big Local News Project, and a Stanford education professor named Thomas D. that found that across the nation, uh, 240,000 students across 21 states, their absences cannot be accounted for. The number is likely far greater than that. New York came in second with more than 132,000 students who left the public schools over the course of the last uh, two school years. That's based on data provided by the state education department. In some cases, uh, the most tragic ones, these are students that um, sort of fell out of schooling during the pandemic when a lot of, uh, of course, live classes were shut down, as you being a parent well know. Um, but, uh, it's, it's also a phenomenon related to, uh, what, what's referred to as redshirting, where people are kind of holding their kids back from beginning schooling, perhaps because they have a birthday that sort of falls within the, you know, the window with which you might wait a year to have your, your child start school again. But it's, uh, it's happening, uh, across the state in both public and private schools as well. You know, the great fear is there's a, a heartbreaking interview just at the at the beginning of the story with a young man named Lester Marshall, who at age 15 
uh, near the start of the pandemic, just stopped going to school. He, you know, he was a kid who had some issues and now alas, he's living in a men's shelter. His, his future is, uh, is challenged. And that's, that's kind of the stakes when kids just kind of fall out of the education system in unexplained ways. Go to timesunion.com to read that story. It is pretty powerful. All right, let's move over to Colony, where our own Brendan Lyons broke some news about two town cops who were caught stealing time. What's going on there? Allegedly, yes, there was an investigation into time clock uh, fraud after an anonymous complaint was uh, issued naming uh, two sergeants. Those sergeants were then subject to an investigation. Now, they were never formally disciplined, which is problematic, but they did agree to a settlement in which they were demoted from sergeant to patrol officer, and they had to pay back a collective, I believe it was about 250 hours of vacation time, accrued time. Now, we have written a lot about gaps in um, police discipline that allow misbehaving officers to hold on to their certification. Here, um, the, the certification was apparently uh, never even questioned. In fact, one of the officers resigned from the Colony Police Department and is now working in Niska Unit. We got no comment back from uh, the attorneys who represented the officers in this in this case. And uh, the deputy police chief in Colony um, explained to Brendan that, well, they just saw this as a really good resolution and that the demotion was, uh, of course, serious, which it is. The problem is, of course, that now this discipline has to be uh, disclosed to uh, defense attorneys every time these officers are called in or in case these officers are called in to testify at trial. This is obviously a, a disciplinary action. And you got to put that in quotes because once again, they were never formally disciplined that uh, is going to uh, continue to to haunt both of these departments as well as these officers. It's um, exceedingly problematic, as our editorial board pointed out uh, two days after the story went out. Well, that story got a lot of traffic on our website this week. It was one of our top stories um, let's move on to another story involving law enforcement that we have been following for, I guess, more than a year now, at least 14 months. A man who was tasered in a Catskill police station burst into flames. He later died of his injuries. What is the latest in that case? What did we report this week? Yeah, Jason Jones, who back in the fall of 2021 went into the Catskill Police Department, a young man who had struggled with behavioral issues, mental health problems, doused himself with hand sanitizer, and then was tased by a police officer. Tasing him, of course, involved coursing electricity through him and across him, and he burst into flames. And even though he, he was able to put himself out, the officers fled the room the damage had been done. He breathed in a lot of the flame and had done uh, serious pulmonary damage to himself, and he died a couple of weeks later. His family is now suing because this is a death resulting from an encounter between a civilian and police. It was subject to investigation by the attorney general's office. As you know, we're now talking more than a year 
after this incident occurred. And as far as we know, the attorney general's office has issued no findings, made no recommendations, hasn't uh, decided whether or not, as far as we know, to put it before a grand jury who might decide whether or not any charges would be brought. The attorney for Jason Jones's family, which once again has a legal action pending, has called on the attorney general to please expedite uh, whatever uh, their investigation is or was, who knows, and let the public know exactly whether or not the attorney general's office thinks that any discipline ought to be brought or any uh, crimes occurred, potentially. Now, just to note that that video of the incident is out there in public and uh, just watch it with caution if you choose to watch it because it is pretty graphic. Um, finally, let's move on to some some news that's a little lighter here. Uh, Chick-fil-A uh, is reportedly coming to the region uh, and we have or have not an update. When is it coming and what can we expect? Because Chick-fil-A makes big news around here whenever we report on it. Yeah, there are a couple of retail companies and food outlets that whenever we write a story about them, we know that readers care. Stewart's is one of them. And at least in a, a nascent way, Chick-fil-A is the other one. There are two Chick-fil-A's that are uh, close, months away from opening. One of them up in Clifton Park uh, on route uh, or near Route 146. That is apparently going to open in March, although they noted that ever snows again here, and that is looking very doubtful, uh, or so the skier in me thinks um, uh, that could happen, could be delayed by weather. And meanwhile, over in Rensselaer County in North Greenbush, another likely Chick-fil-A or imminent Chick-fil-A is scheduled for a July opening. Now, of course, you can still go to Albany International Airport as long as you are about to get on a flight or at least have bought a plane ticket, go through the security gate and go by Chick-fil-A. But until at least March, that's going to be your only option in the capital region. If you're craving Chick-fil-A, hopefully you can wait a month to save a little money. <laughs> All right, Casey, thank you so much. We will check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. Okay, let's move on to some music from an iconic musician who, full disclosure, is one of my personal favorites. Darling, you sent me. Sam Cooke was one of the pioneers of soul music. He was also a major figure in the civil rights movement. In February of 1964, 59 years ago this month, he recorded what became an anthem of the pursuit of social justice. A change is gonna come. A long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Tragically, Cook was shot to death in a Los Angeles hotel in December of that year. The circumstances of the killing are unclear and remain debated to this day. He was only 33 years old, but his music has endured and inspired many, including singer Brad Marquis. Let me tell you about a place Somewhere up in New York way Where the people are so gay Twisting the night away 
Marquis travels the country performing a tribute show that delves into the life and music of Sam Cooke. He'll be performing at Universal Preservation Hall on February 17th. I got the chance to talk to him recently about his work and about Sam Cooke. Here's some of that conversation. Let me tell you about a place Somewhere up in New York way Where the people are so gay Twisting the night away First question I want to ask you is, can you just talk, you know, give me a summary of your show and what it's about? I take you uh, on a journey uh, of Sam Cooke's life um, from from birth to death um, and everything in between, you know, from his uh, rise as a gospel superstar to his rise as a pop star to his transition into a social uh, justice activist. I infuse a little bit of, you know, my history and, and how I learned about Sam Cooke and and the impact that it's had on my life. And we just have a little fun. We, you know, we just have a little fun. Now, tell me more about the impact that Sam Cooke has had on your life and why you chose to do a show about him. He chose me. The show chose me. You know, I was uh, at a friend's house and I had just come off of an acting residency and she told me I, you know, looked at, looked like Sam Cooke, reminded her of Sam Cooke. And she wasn't the first person to said it. I had heard it before. But she gave me a book called Dream Boogie, uh, the autobiography of Sam Cooke. And so I read it a couple of times, front to back, and and decided I wanted to, you know, do a show. And once I started digging into his music and really learning his music, I realized I had I was very familiar with it because my grandparents had introduced it to me when I was very, very young. And um, I just didn't know who I was listening to at the time. It's grown ever since. It's just, you know, it took, it's taken on a life of its own. And, and just every year, you know, we've just tried to add little things to it. And just it's just grown and grown and grown. And here we are. Darling, you send me. I know that you. Can you describe Sam Cooke's music to someone who might not be familiar with it? I mean, there were different, there's different levels of, of Sam Cooke's music. I mean, we have the the gospel aspect of what he did. Um, and it was traditional gospel music, quartet style gospel music um, from, you know, the, the 50s, early 50s. Um, and then he transitioned to a crooner, more in the line of Frank Sinatra and, you know, Nat King Cole and Harry Belafonte. And, you know, when you hear songs like You Send Me, and then when he when he truly found himself is when he combined the two. And when he combined the two, that's what we now call soul music. And that evolved into R&B soul. Um, and that's just, you know, combining the passion and the love for God, a love for what you're doing and singing um, with the crooning style of, you know, what pop music was back then. So you would take the, you know, the quartet style or, you know, the passion that was sung utilizing, you know, within gospel music and use that same passion in singing, you know, the pop music. So if you ever change your mind, 
that's when Sam Cooke, you know, truly found himself when he was able to bridge the two, you know, but that formed a whole new genre of music, you know, him and Ray Charles and Little Richard, you know, but Little Richard's known more for rock than that, but he did sing even in rock, he sang with soul, you know, and so that's where Sam is, you know, singing with soul. He's very much always been my road trip album. I always play one of his albums when I'm on a road trip. <laughs> Tell me how, what process you go through to kind of physically embody him, you know, with your voice and with your mannerisms. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you, how you perfected it? Initially, that was a goal of mine when I first started, you know, to get his inflections in his voice, to get his mannerisms and movements Early on, that was the goal. It's not so much the goal anymore. You know, now it's, I'm just really just making sure I'm uh, honoring the legacy and honoring the uh, intent of the music, but really just making it my, my own, you know, but definitely keeping the integrity of the original and the intent of the original. You know, nowadays I'm just, I'm Brad singing Sam Cooke's music. And you're going to get a lot of brag and you're going to get, you know, you're going to get Sam. Can you talk a little bit about how you weave in um, the themes of social justice and, and the things that he stood for? Yeah, I mean, it's not hard because it's just following the story of his life. Um, and there were moments in his life that allows the show to lean more towards the social justice aspect. There were songs that he created. There were songs that he sung that just allows the show to lean towards that. And it just it just happens, you know, in chronological order, you know, and his music embodies all of that. You know, so for for us, it's just very, it's very easy to make that transition because his life made that transition. Said it's been a long, a long time coming, and I know, I know, change is gonna come. You know, obviously he died very tragically and under very not clear circumstances sketchy, I might even say. Um, do you address that at all? Is that part of, you know, and how do you, or how do you kind of deal with that in your show? I, I mention it, but it's not a, a heavy talking point or sticking point, you know, because although we could probably go on and on and on about when, why, and what, and, and how, and all of that stuff, I think there's more important things about his life, you know, and things that he accomplished in his 33 years and impact that you know, he made and probably would have made had he conti continued to live that are addressed more so than how he died. You know, at the end of the day, he did die. At the end of the day, it was tragic. At the end of the day, you know, it was unceremonious in comparison to how he lived and his impact on the world. But I think we can pull a whole lot more from how he lived and, and use those in our own respective lives Let's go back to when you were talking about how, you know, in the show, there's a lot of you that comes out. Can you talk about 
the role that you play in the show and what you kind of bring to the to the experience? I just bring my love. I bring my love for him. I bring my love for what I do. I bring my love for the people I do it with. I bring my love for the people I do it for. Hopefully the audience feels that. Hopefully the audience is inspired by that. Hopefully the audience, you know, I don't know, takes that away and and, and uses it in their own community and their own home. So someone's going to come to see your show. You know, a whole bunch of people are going to come to see your show. What is the main kind of takeaway that you want them to have from the experience? Well, something I say in the show, it's all love all the time. And that's what I want people to pull away from it. I want, you know, you know, we're all family. We are all, you know, should be all supporting one another, loving on each other and loving on our immediate family and community. You know, everything, even the ones that don't look like you or don't do the same things that you do or don't come from where you come from. But, you know, a lot of our love is shared over um, experiences. And Sam Cooke is one of those experiences that a lot of, you know, different races, a lot of different uh, genders, whatever, whatever, ages, whatever, whatever, can come and share together and and leave together. You know, it it happened in his day and it, and it happens in this day, you know, where we all can have a shared experience. And hopefully, uh, hopefully through this show there, you know, they, they walk out with inspiration and love, a lot of inspiration and love. After the break, we'll hear another segment from our brand new Times Union podcast, Rainwalker, The Lost Boy. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. The Times Union launched a brand new podcast last month. It's called Rainwalker, The Lost Boy, and it explores the mysterious disappearance of 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker. He vanished without a trace in 2007 from the Washington County village of Greenwich. His case was ruled a probable homicide, but no suspects were ever named. Our seven-part series delves into the life, disappearance, and 15-year search for Jalik. Here's a little bit of our fourth episode, which dropped this week. Lisa Hudson was watching the kids in the 5th and 6th grade classes on the playground at Salem Central School one winter's day. It was 2005. She was a teacher's aide at the time. Part of her job was to chaperone the middle schoolers during lunch and recess periods every day. That day, she noticed that one of the kids was not wearing a jacket. It was freezing outside. She says she pulled him aside, 
and told him to go to the nurse's office and grab a coat there. The school kept spare coats and outerwear for kids there who needed them. He uh, immediately said, I don't know why anyone cares what I'm wearing. I live in a tent, Mrs. Hudson. And at that point, it caught me off guard. Lisa Hudson knew his family. She'd gone trick-or-treating with her kids at his house in Salem. Why was Jalik Rainwalker telling her he lived in a tent? I said, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, my family's building a house, and right now it's under construction, but we're living out, I'm living outside in a tent. Hudson says Jalik ultimately relented and went inside to get a coat. She says she saw him later that day. He was wearing a vibrant yellow fleece jacket that he picked up in the nurse's office. She says she couldn't shake what he told her about his living conditions. It didn't feel right. And when something didn't feel right with a kid in school, well, she was a mandated reporter. I went directly to my superior. I explained to her my concerns. And at that point, she said that she would, you know, take it to the level that she needed to. And it went from there. Uh, no one contacted me, though, to ask me what I was told by Julie. No CPS or anything like that, though. Lisa Hudson was let go soon after due to budget cuts. She says the situation has haunted her since she heard Jalik disappeared. When I first saw the picture on the news, I was devastated. It, it triggered me, um, mainly because I had an interaction with him, that I had saw him in that fleece, that I had asked the people that were above me to reach out for help for him. And then I feel guilty. I feel like I should have done more. After Jalik went missing, his parents described him as possibly wearing a yellow fleece. We were not able to confirm whether Lisa Hudson's reporting led to any investigation. Lisa's superior at the time did not respond to a request for comment for this podcast, and a spokesman for the Washington County Child Protective Services Agency said he could not discuss the specifics of any complaint or subsequent report due to state laws. But by Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald's own admission, in a 2007 interview that aired on Albany's News 10, they had been subject to a Child Protective Services investigation involving Jalik several years before. This 28-minute interview from December of 2007 is no longer available online, but we obtained a verified copy of it. WTEN's management would not allow us to use any audio from it in our podcast. They also prohibited us from talking on the record to the reporter who conducted that interview, Anya Tucker, so we're paraphrasing here. Jocelyn McDonald told WTEN the incident occurred three months after Jalik had come to live with them. 
She says he told his social worker that his foster parents, Jocelyn and Stephen, locked him in his bedroom at night and that they punished him more often than they did their older biological son. Jocelyn said that was true, quote, because our older son had always lived with us and knew all the rules and was not mentally ill, unquote. When the couple from the rural upstate New York County first took Jalik into their family as a foster child, they lived in a rented four-bedroom house in Salem, New York. That's about 10 minutes away from Greenwich, allegedly where Jalik disappeared. They had regular, mandated visits from social workers from Parsons Children and Family Center. That's again the organization that's responsible for Jalik's foster care placement. Jocelyn McDonald said the CPS report that came from Jalik saying he was locked in his bedroom ended up unfounded. That means a CPS official found no evidence of abuse or neglect. Typically, unfounded reports are kept confidential. You wouldn't know about them unless someone told you. But Jocelyn spoke openly about it during this 2007 interview. She called it a lie. She said Jalik made it up because of his, quote, mental illness. Kids like Jalik are scared of being abandoned, she said. So they try to separate themselves from the people who love them. Jalik had been diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder. Children with this condition have trouble forming attachments to caregivers. They also have trouble regulating their emotions and behaviors. Jalik had been receiving therapy when he came to live with Stephen and Jocelyn, according to what his previous foster family told the Times Union in 2007. That couple, who has not spoken publicly since then, also told the Times Union that Jalik had problems controlling his anger. He'd been prone to violent outbursts in their home. They feared him, they said. Rainwalker, The Lost Boy was produced and edited by Wendy Libertor and myself, Jessica Marshall. We had help from Lauren Stanforth, Susan Mahalik, Lori Todd, Erica Smith, Tom Crocker, Jeff Shearer, and Casey Seiler. New episodes of Rainwalker, The Lost Boy drop on Tuesday mornings. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler for his contribution to this episode.